This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Medicine, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Claire Clark, one of the hosts on the channel, and today we'll be talking to Nicole Piamonte about her fantastic book, Afflicted, How Vulnerability Can Heal Medical Education and Practice. Nicole, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Claire. I wonder if you could begin our interview by telling us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, sure. So I am originally from Arizona, and I have a background in English, so I've always been engaged in the humanities. I have a master's in communication studies and advocacy, and then I moved to Texas to pursue a PhD in medical humanities. It was the only place that offers a PhD in medical humanities, on a strange island of Galveston, Texas. So I moved to the south of Texas to get my PhD and actually didn't really envision myself moving back to Arizona. But when I was a graduate student, I met, strangely enough, in Chicago, a group of folks who were doing some work at Arizona State University around health humanities. And before I graduated, they'd offered me a postdoc position in applied ethics in Arizona. And, you know, when you get a PhD in the humanities, your job options are rather limited. So I gladly you, you took go, it. You go where the job is, for <laughs> yes, sure. Yes, you do. So I ended up back in Arizona, which was actually really wonderful to be back with my family and my friends. And um, I did my postdoc there for a year helped think through some health humanities for pre-health students who were thinking about eventually going on to uh, some graduate work or medical school. And then uh, about a year after that, I uh, accepted a position at Creighton University School of Medicine. So uh, many people might know that Creighton University is in Omaha, Nebraska, but we have a Phoenix regional campus about to open up a four-year medical school next fall, but currently we have Uh, third and fourth year medical students. And so about a year from now, a little over a year, we'll have our first inaugural class. So I'm currently the assistant dean for medical education. Also have an appointment in our newly founded Department of Medical Humanities. So doing lots of teaching and curriculum and really practicing a bit of what I preached in that book, not envisioning that I would actually get to do this work. So I'm really entrenched in the realities of manifesting some of the ideals that I once spoke of in that book that you read. So, Well, that's great. I hope you'll tell us a little bit about how that's going, building a medical Mm -hmm. school from the ground up um, after having written the book on it. Um, um, tell, Tell us, how did you come to write Afflicted? Oh, so 
it stems back a bit to uh, why I decided to pursue graduate studies in medical humanities in the first place. So when I was a master's student in Arizona, uh, my mom was diagnosed with advanced ovarian cancer, and I kind of entered my journey into medicine primarily as a informal familial caregiver of my mom. I was her primary caregiver. So I had been studying um, some health communication, actually, coincidentally, at the time during my master's. And I went through that journey with my mom in the summer before my between my first and second year of my master's program, she died rather unexpectedly. In hindsight, it wasn't unexpected, but the journey I'd gone through with her, there were always options presented to us from her medical team. And being kind of a novice in medicine, I, we just went down that path and kept going down that path without having any kind of real difficult conversations about end-of-life care. So when she died in a way that seemed sudden to me, even though it was always around the corner and death was always looming, I realized something had gone wrong, that we hadn't had the conversations that needed to have happened. And I think at first I was mad or sad about uh, the way the physicians engaged with us? Why hadn't they had these really difficult conversations with us? Um, At the time, I was enrolled to start my second year of my master's program, and I was enrolled in a class called Mother-Daughter Communication and Cancer. And that seemed overwhelming to me at the time uh, to do that, you know, three or four weeks after my mom had died. But the professor really encouraged me and said, you know, if it became overwhelming, she would (laughs) support me not coming to class. Um, And I did. And in that course, I learned so much about the dynamics that happens in in families, um, that happens in the medical context. And really my, my frustration or disappointment or anger at the doctors for not having hard conversations with us kind of transmuted itself into some compassion because I realized that we are not preparing our physicians and our physicians in training to confront death and vulnerability and to have these really hard conversations. And I realized I wanted to know more about this. I wanted to know more about why medicine is the way that it is. So with the encouragement of that one professor, uh, I decided to pursue the PhD in medical humanities in in large part because the humanities grapple with the human condition and, and questions of meaning uh, beyond just here are the skills we need to train healthcare practitioners uh, in a different way. So while I was in Galveston getting my PhD, I really didn't want to engage in philosophy and and some of the work I did in my master's program, I wanted to get away from it because it was so challenging, but I I couldn't not ask the questions I wanted to ask of medicine without drawing on uh, philosophy and in, in particular existential philosophy and continental philosophy and those deeper questions about suffering, meaning, vulnerability. And as I studied that in my graduate program, it, it turned itself into my dissertation, 
which was really asking the question of, if we look at medicine's epistemology and, and how they know, how doctors think they know what they know, it's really grounded in, in this scientific detached way of thinking. And I wanted to explore the human elements that science can't speak to. And so I, I focused my dissertation on that. Uh, and then eventually this book became uh, an iteration of that dissertation, a, a rewrite and a rethink and, and really asking that question of medicine and healthcare training of why we evade vulnerability and suffering when vulnerability and suffering are everywhere. And why did, was it so easy for my mom and I and our family and her caregivers and physicians, why was it so easy not to talk about what was right in front of our face? And so this book is an exploration of why it's so easy to turn away from vulnerability and suffering, despite the fact that medicine is just infused with it at every step. So I'm curious about that because I think vulnerability has become like, if you think of Brene Brown, it's become this really big buzzword and it's sort of like, you know, it's big in self-help culture. But what we talk about in medicine all the time is resilience, right? I hear resilience getting thrown around, wellness, um, why do you think we should co- concentrate on vulnerability and, um, and how does vulnerability in the way that you define it in your book relate to these like resilience, wellness kind of terms that get, get tossed around a lot? I love that question, Claire, because it's funny. After I wrote the book, we started talking, or at least it appeared to me, we started talking a lot more in medicine about burnout. Uh, and about resiliency. And I think too often those terms get thrown around in a way that the discussion becomes, what does the clinician or learner need to do in order to foster resiliency? And so it becomes an added task in an already busy person's life. So do I need to meditate more? Do I need to reflect more? Do I need to do more yoga? Do I need to have more balance? When vulnerability, I think, captures the core of burnout, in my view, burnout is caused by engaging in factory-like, routinized encounters with patients where there's no connection And it's, can I see this patient in 15 minutes? And this concentration on billing and coding and uh, engaging with the electronic medical record, that to me causes burnout. More so, uh, it's about disconnection from meaning and purpose and less about hours worked. So I think vulnerability, this ability for a healthcare practitioner to recognize the suffering of the patient in front of them, that the healthcare practitioner herself is always already one step away from that kind of suffering too. I could suffer just as easily. I could get a terrible diagnosis. And that connection that comes with recognizing shared vulnerability brings meaning and purpose to one's vocation, to one's calling in a way that I think prevents burnout. But when we tell people to be impervious and be detached and just get through the day, 
that disconnection of meaning, that crisis of meaning that comes from that uh, can cause burnout and disillusionment. So I think if we're getting our, our healthcare trainees and our healthcare practitioners to be vulnerable, to reflect on the good, bad, funny, terrible, ugly, beautiful moments of their career is going to bring us back to connection, meaning, purpose, and be protective against burnout. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, to me, it makes a lot of sense. Um, I'm going to back up a little bit and and ask why in the book, why do you, do you argue that we turn? Why do we turn away from suffering? Mm-hmm. You argue we turn away from suffering and that medicine, in some sense, makes and makes suffering worse. Can you tell us a little bit about, um, you know, how you sort of lay lay that out for us? Yeah. So it's. My ideas about suffering are really drawn on, as I mentioned before, kind of existential philosophy and continental philosophy in particular. I focus a lot on Heidegger, Martin Heidegger, who admittedly is a deeply flawed person with a really problematic past. Mm -hmm. Um, So that must just be said. But a lot of his work focused on the fact that suffering, is who we are as humans to be is to suffer or endure the world that we were thrown into, that we have a shared suffering at our ontological core. We suffer. And that he also argues that part of the human condition is the tendency to turn away from that suffering. And primarily that suffering, that anxiety is caused by the fact that we are finite beings, that we are mortal, that we are going to die. And Heidegger's argument is that that causes existential anxiety in all of us, and that we also share that anxiety and that suffering. So my argument is that medicine's focus on science, on let's intervene in the biological body. Let's run more tests and take uh, more images and focus on your labs is a way to not face the fact that I could be that patient at any moment, that I am just as vulnerable as that patient in front of me. So medicine causes more suffering because it denies the existential reality of suffering while simultaneously acknowledging the physical elements of suffering. So it holds on to suffering and pushes it away all at once because it doesn't acknowledge the deep existential anxiety that comes with our shared vulnerability and the precariousness of being a mortal being. Well, now, how do we get out of that problem? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so... I think that the problem with getting out of that problem is that Heidegger says this is just who we are, that we um, inauthentically face that reality all the time. And then we only have these moments of authenticity when we go, wow, um, our mortality is real and it's ever present. And it's not something that is going to eventually happen to me one day, but it's with me all the time that I could uh, cease to be at any moment. Heidegger 
And others who are writing in this vein will say that confronting that mortality brings immediacy to our relationships. We love better. We live better when we recognize that this is not going to go on and on and on. And and I think in medicine, when a patient's suffering or a patient's mortality, when I'm confronted with that, not only does that potentially bring authenticity to that patient's life when they say, wow, my time is limited. Maybe I'm going to love better and live better. I think that a medical student, a nurse, a nursing student, a physician, they're reminded of their own finitude and mortality by being fully present with that patient and that that can transform them, that those constant reminders of mortality, which admittedly too much of that is overwhelming and, you know, could lead to burnout, if you will, constantly confronting death can be emotionally and physically exhausting. But if we train our future healthcare practitioners to fully be present with patients, they receive, they, the trainee or the practitioner receives the greatest gift on this planet, which is a recognition that we ought not take things for granted, and we can, in fact, live with authenticity. You draw on some other thinkers in in this chapter, too. Um, I wondered if you wanted to say say anything about them. You talk a bit about Levinas and Aristotle, um, get into the development of, of virtue a bit. Right. So, I love Emmanuel Levinas. I love him. So, you know, he, he stands a bit as a corrective to Heidegger. And, you know, he he was a survivor of the Holocaust and just went through so much. And Levinas says that Heidegger doesn't touch enough on the on the ethical. And what Levinas is saying is that uh, we are called to address the call of the face of the other. And, you know, I should say, Claire, all of these thinkers are rather opaque and difficult to um, navigate what they're saying. You know, they they speak more literarily than they do um, analytically. So, you know, Levinas is using this trope of the face to say that I'm called by the suffering of the other. And to be ethical is to respond to that call. Now, in healthcare, the call of the face of the other is everywhere. That's like just what medicine is. And following Levinas, we see that it's not enough to just give a patient information and let them do what they will with that and let them make their own autonomous decisions, but to respond to that call in a meaningful human way. Uh, Treat that person in a way that you would want to be treated as a, a human being. But Levinas also points out that I can't ever fully know that person in front of me. That person is inherently other than me, which is so important. So we're not projecting our own ways of seeing and being in the world, which, you know, 
in a lot of ways has been driven by a um, masculine white perspective. And I think Levinas is important because I can't reduce the other to me and treat them exactly the way I want to be treated. I have to treat them in their own uniqueness. And that's where this Aristotelian idea of uh, phronesis or practical wisdom, I kind of try to connect what Levinas is saying with Aristotle, that we have to train our health care, our future healthcare practitioners to be able to discern particularities, to know how to ask the right questions, and to make the best and wise decision for this particular person in front of me. And that fundamentally requires enough time and willingness to get to know that person in front of you and what that kind of care needs to be shaped like for that person right in front of me. And that it's not going to be a one size fits all. So this requires mentorship from other virtuous practitioners who can show students what that means. And Aristotle talks a lot about mentorship. So this is why this focus in healthcare education on personal and professional development, identity formation, we are not training technicians we are training carers of other people. And it's now that's that's so easy to it's maybe that's uh, <laughs> it's easier said than done, I think. Um, and but of course, now um, now you're in the position of doing it. So how do we train? How do we train healers versus just technicians? Well, I know you. Practically. Yes. And I know you understand the challenges of this, Claire. Because from what I understand, you are teaching healthcare learners too. <laughs> and yeah. Yeah. Um, it's a constant question. Can we teach virtue? Can we teach empathy? Are these even teachable things? You, people will argue that you either have it or you don't. You're born with it or not. Or it was shaped by uh, someone's uh, kind of core family. So once they get to college or university or healthcare training, it's too late. So there are moments maybe <laughs> where I agree with that. I kind of go back and forth. There are moments where I'm like, gosh, you know, maybe none of this is teachable and it's all futile. But as a medical humanist who is attempting to train and cultivate healers in the tradition of the medical humanities, I want to say that it is teachable. So I think it's teachable in a way that um, lets students grapple with what it means to be human. What does it mean to be lonely, scared, um, isolated? Uh, what does it mean to be embodied as someone totally different from you? And facts and statistics are not going to get us there. They are not compelling they're, they're helpful and useful, but they're not compelling. You know, Heidegger talks about how we've got a calculative way of thinking and a meditative way of thinking. And this calculative way of thinking has become ubiquitous. We, we are driven by um, scientific 
understandings of the world. Now, granted, I think that data and science are so important, especially in the context we are in today with a pandemic. Like, we need that. Absolutely. But when it comes to helping a medical student, for example, understand the suffering of his or her patient, facts and statistics are not going to get us there. It's going to be personal stories shared by patients. It's going to be works of fiction that it's going to be poetry and art and, and music and these expressions of narrative that share the human element that we need to give our healthcare trainees so much more of that because that offers the language to ask the question in a way that science cannot and scientific language cannot. So for my students, for instance, if they're in their neuroscience course, yeah, I want them to understand the pathology of of what happens when someone has MS or experiences a stroke. But my job is to teach them what's the lived experience of that? What is it like to try to recreate one's identity after a devastating brain injury or stroke? And that comes with narrative and film and uh, an exposure to others suffering that they are not going to get from their textbook. What do you see as the difference between um, medical humanism, medical ethics, and then professional, and then medical professionalism? Because it seems like they all kind of they overlap quite a bit, or they they are sometimes meant to stand in for each other. Yeah, I don't. I anyway, I wonder what you think about that. Yeah. So you know, in my own training in the medical humanities program it required medical ethics and clinical ethics and going on ethics rounds and seeing patients. And uh, that was part of it. And they are deeply connected. And if we're going to think about ethics in the way Levinas thinks about ethics, which is how I respond to the suffering of the other, then they're so connected, medical humanities and ethics. But in practice, in the way we see it typically in healthcare education, When ethics is reduced down to five basic principles that I need to respect in terms of patient care and what is autonomy and beneficence and non-maleficence and Mm -hmm. um, informed consent, (laughs) I think ethics scratches at the surface of what the medical humanities want to get to, which are questions of meaning and what it means to be human. And how is that related to medicine? And medicine is just absolutely a microcosm of the human condition. Birth, death, suffering, joy, pain, loneliness, all of it is right there. And we need something beyond ethical principles to help students and practitioners navigate the messiest of professions and giving them a language beyond what ought I do in this situation? What's the best decision to make? And really getting more toward how might I be a better person with my fellow being who might be suffering? 
tell us um, about how you um, imagine or reimagine medical education in the final chapter of your book. I see this as being like the sort of rubber meets the road Mm -hmm. chapter, and I'm particularly interested in um, what it looks, how it looks like what it looks like to you now, now that the book's been out a couple of years, mm-hmm. now that you've been in the trenches building this new medical school, um, how how does the vision that you lay out in this final chapter sort of match up to reality? Oh, <laughs> so in some ways, this chapter is kind of a reward for getting through the middle of the book, which is just this kind of like really onerous philosophy. And I commend you, Claire. So, you know, you get to this one and it's a little, when you say rubber meets the road, it's just kind of like, okay, now we're back to uh, reality and and it's a little bit easier to, to get through. Now, that doesn't mean that this is not, chapter five is just this idealized version of medical school. So I, I have to say that the book was informed Uh, in large part by my friends and colleagues at the time, many of whom were also getting a PhD and were in medical school. Um, The program was out of medical school. My current partner in life, who I've been with for a long time now, I I met him when he was a first-year medical student and went through that whole journey with him. And I kind of knew the realities of it. And I was trained in the medical humanities to teach medical students. Now, the, the book is really focused on medical education. I wish I had expanded it out to other health professions because the same issues are, are present there as well. Um, but what the reality has looked like. So now that I have really worked closely with medical students and in particular residents, residents who are caring for patients in the realest of ways. Um, Sometimes I think that this was too idealized to say, you know, we can educate their moral imagination and we need to expose them to stories of suffering and strength and all, all of those things I still believe to be true. I do. But what I've come to realize, and it's so hard for me because my medical humanist heart never wants to reduce the humanities to an instrument. I do not want to instrumentalize the humanities as a means to an end. I don't. But if I fail to make the medical humanities deeply relevant to these medical students, it is dismissed as extraneous and superfluous. So I guess I wish I would have spoken a little bit more about how the medical humanist needs to uh, meaningfully make relationships with the basic scientists who are teaching these medical students and embedding and integrating the humanities within that curriculum. Because I think we've won the day when a medical student doesn't know that they are in a medical humanities session or doesn't know that in this cardiac didactic session in their cardiology course, they're learning about the lived experience of illness, that it is so deeply blended together that the way we teach medicine is in such a way that you care about this, the suffering and lived experience about your patient. And that's how it's taught to you, that you don't need a separate course to understand that. That's the dream. At the same time, 
we just went through a curriculum revision at Creighton and there's a huge medical humanities focus. The dean of the medical school, the president of the university are so supportive of the medical humanities. It's been amazing. I've never had to say, hey, let's do more of this. They just ask me to do it. It's so amazing. And I know that I am really fortunate in that regard. So when we've created these separate selective courses and these opportunities for the medical students that are humanities through and through, like a course that we do where they they learn about empathy through creating art. Those are such life-giving courses to these medical students that I do think the humanities need to live um, separately in, an, in a non-instrumentalized kind of way while also being so deeply embedded in the regular curriculum that they become invisible. So I want it to be a both and. And I don't think I quite understood when I wrote this chapter how much uh, partnership with the basic science curriculum the medical humanist needs to have so that we are just educating a different kind of, of physician uh, in a way that extends beyond like electives in the medical humanities. That's really interesting because I think of... Um medical humanities, uh, you know, should it be more allied with clinical education or basic science education? I, um, I think I, I would agree with you that certainly what you don't want is for it to be a wellness add-on. You either read a book or you do some yoga, you know? Um, um, but, uh, um, I think whether it, it belongs more in clinical education or whether it belongs more in the preclinical and didactic education is a really interesting question. And I think that it's the answer is both. So, you know, I write a lot about the importance of reflection uh, in, and I, I'm inheriting a lot of this some, from some really amazing um, medical educators and writers in the medical humanities that have been writing about the importance of reflection. And It's easier, I think, in the preclinical years to carve out protected time where reflection is what they're doing. Now, at Creighton, we're a Jesuit Catholic university. So the Jesuits are huge on reflection (laughs) and Ignatian pedagogy. And I really didn't understand the intersection between medical humanities and a Jesuit education until I came here. I didn't know anything about Jesuit education. (laughs) So um, the Ignatian pedagogy that is kind of the ground of Jesuit education is on self-reflection and taking time to sit and reflect on what one is doing and who they want to be in the world. And that's the medical humanities too. So I think that in the preclinical years, you can create these things where they, they've got to turn in a reflection or, and we do a ton of it at Creighton, a ton of it. The clinical years and we know that the research says that, you know, Hojot's writing about the, the attenuation or the, the erosion of ethics and empathy that happens in the third year, which is horrifying to think about because that's when students start seeing patients full time, really, for the first time. And we have found that it's the third year that students lose empathy. So what is happening in the third year? Well, they're learning from the hidden curriculum They're learning from modeling from problematic mentors, problematic residents and clinical mentors who 
they thought in the first and second year when they had to do all my medical humanities stuff that, oh, compassion, empathy, understanding the lived experience, suffering, vulnerability. And then they get on the wards and it's like, oh, that did not reflect the reality of what's really going on. And what's really going on is you're seeing as many patients as you can, as fast as you can, and not connecting to anyone. And so getting the humanities or at minimum opportunities to reflect on what is happening to these students has to happen in the clinical year. We created a group on our campus called Beyond Medicine. And we, well, before COVID, we met every five weeks or so and had dinner and there were maybe 20 to 30 students. And we have a small class, you know, at the time is like 55 students and 30 of them are showing up to Beyond Medicine. And we're just taking an opportunity, an hour and a half to just talk about what's happening and what was it like the first time you did a code and had to do CPR on someone or saw someone die or or felt incompetent and stupid and giving them moments to even connect back or to have solidarity like oh my gosh I'm so glad that you felt that way too because I felt just like that they need those moments and I think the clinical years are critical for that because I think we can undo a lot of the good work we've done in the preclinical years when we just let them loose. Mm-hmm. What I, I wonder um, what you think about the connection between the medical humanities and medical ethics and sort of issues of, of justice. Um, I mean, in some ways, when you say that, that this, the kind of looking that you're calling for in this book is a kind of antidote or, you know, um, counterpart to the sort of the, the clinical gaze or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, um, object or pure objectivity kind mm-hmm. of things like that. So um, I just wonder, um, and you don't get into it much in the book, but I think that that absolutely relates to issues of, um, yeah. of, of justice and structure. Yeah. So... I I feel like at the time I was writing this book, the medical humanities or health humanities was kind of facing a reckoning of of sorts in that there were decades in which we didn't pay enough attention to issues of justice. And so medical humanities, at least in my view, took a bit of a critical turn and became a critical medical humanities. And I identify as doing critical medical humanities now, especially And so in the curriculum that I've worked with my colleagues to create at Creighton, it has to be critical medical humanities. We talk about race and white fragility and um, these really difficult conversations that the medical humanities allows us to have. And this year, you know, because the first time we rolled this out was last year. And so we've only had one class of students going through these like small group medical humanity sessions that we do. And I think if I could go back, I wanted to, I, I, I want to frame things differently for them that I'm not, uh, my colleagues and I are not assigning them material that they just need to like memorize and regurgitate it or that they are going to agree with. We want to assign them provocative material that they disagree with and If there were no disagreements, there would be no dialogue, and then we wouldn't be doing our work in the medical humanities, which is to foster civil discourse and and have dialogue so that 
we can ask the hard questions and grow. And I don't know if I framed that enough for the medical students. And so the conversations around, you know, I signed Jonathan Metzl's Dying of Whiteness, which is really an amazing book. And I assigned the introduction to the entire first year medical school class. And there were students who were like, oh yeah, I get this. This is old news. Like white fragility is a thing. And let's talk about privilege and race. And they were just took it and and ran. But I had others who were frustrated and angry that uh, their medical school seemed to be, as, as one student said, forcing the liberal media agenda. And our students are, are, some of them are young and maybe haven't had these kinds of conversations. And I did them a disservice by not framing that it's okay to disagree and have this really hard discourse. That's what we're here to do. And that's what the medical humanities open up a space to do. They open up that opportunity to have that conversation. I think we are failing medical students if we are not doing critical medical humanities and not having the conversations that make us so, so uncomfortable because these people are going to be caring for a huge variety of people. And if we have not helped them discern how they're going to be when they are confronted with someone so different from who they are, we have failed them as educators. So it's not just about, oh, I I recognize suffering and I want to care for you. No, it's about maybe creating physician advocates, maybe creating healthcare practitioners who say, I cannot function in this healthcare system because it undermines my ability to care well for people and helping equip our future healthcare practitioners to do that hard work because they have a voice that society listens to and they need to use it. So, I mean, that's the turn I've taken recently. I know. Well, I mean, would you say that is is your book just medical humanities and not critical medical Uh, humanities? You know, so I, I think I write in the the preface or introduction or somewhere along the lines, you know, that I I think in some ways uh, Levinas is articulating kind of a a feminist philosophy and a a feminist moral disposition. Um, And really that's a focus on relationships and our interconnectedness with those around us. Um, I think Levinas also helps us say that others are fundamentally different than we are. We can't ever know them, like I had mentioned earlier. And, you know, I think that in some ways, the kind of medical humanities I'm asking for sets the stage for critical work because it is about recognizing the stories of the other and the stories of the other are replete with injustice and violence. And this medical humanities opens up the opportunity to hear those stories and that we are morally obligated to hear those stories. But it's not a focus necessarily on here or in this book. You know, I I, I, I talk a little bit about um, otherness and, and borders and not usurping stories of others. And it's there, but 
the pedagogical approach isn't necessarily critical medical humanities. And I guess if I could, you know, write an addendum or something, that's probably what it would be focused on because I just feel so passionately about it now. Well, Nicole, um, we've taken up a lot of your time and that last comment really just sort of, um, it, it leads me to my final question. It's just too perfect a segue. So, um, so other than, aside from building a, you know, um, undergraduate medical curriculum from the ground mm-hmm. up, um, and, and doing the educational research and, and things like that, mm-hmm. that you're working on. Um, what, what are you working on now? Do you have another big book project in the pipeline? Um, well, interestingly, I do. So um, I'm in the final stages with MIT Press again. I, I co-wrote a book with my partner, Sean. I alluded to him earlier. So mm-hmm. he is a hospice and palliative care physician now. He just finished his fellowship. And so we wrote a book for MIT Press on death and dying in America. And I, I'm excited about that project because it's for their essential knowledge series, which means it's written um, not in a like really, really academic way. It's written in a very accessible way. And while we were writing the book, uh, after we had received our contract, my dad was diagnosed with stage four uh, gastric cancer. And Sean and I kind of helped care for him along the way. And, and he died while we were writing that book. And Interestingly enough, uh, that book, which is focused so much on the importance of having vulnerable conversations mm-hmm. and conversations about end of life, we still um, weren't able to really get my dad connected to end of life care in the way that we wanted. And Sean and I are people who this is the work we do, and we yeah. still couldn't change the course much differently than what my mom's course was and him getting treatment all the way up until the end, you know, and really exploring what it is about medical culture that keeps turning away from death. So uh, we are in the final editing stages of that, and that should be coming out um, later this year or early 2021. And we take a lot of time in that book to take what maybe might be a critical medical humanities perspective and showing how market logic and the commercialization of medicine has really, really prevented us from caring well for people, especially those at the end of life. So that was kind of a ironically life-giving thing to write together. So that's what's coming up. I think that Claire, if you do stumble across that book when it comes out, um, it will be much more uh, pleasurable, even though the topic is not pleasurable, to read, <laughs> much less philosophy. So you yeah. might like it a little bit more. <laughs> I, I like to flick it too. I like, I will, I mean, I will just have to confess to, to, the, to our listeners that I had not read some of those philosophers since college, which was mm-hmm. a very long time. So I was doing a, you know, calling on some old, old oh, memories. Yeah, <laughs> yeah um, digging, digging stuff up way back in the brain. I understand. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking time to, to talk with us, Nicole. And um, 
Yeah. And, and I, I do hope to be able to talk to you again about, about your new book when it comes out. Thank you, Claire. And thanks for even being interested in this at all. I love getting to talk to people who feel um, that it matters to think about how we're educating our, our future caregivers because it seems so important. So thanks for even being interested in it. I appreciate it.